0: and an empty ambulance is coming by and they said, do you need help? And I was like, uh, yes, because we couldn't move through the traffic in a Subaru. But once we got in an ambulance and lights and sirens, we were at Arlington Hospital in a minute or two minutes. To this day, that's one of the happiest sights I can recall was pulling up with this patient who was struggling and the folks at Arlington Hospital, you know, lined
1: up outside to receive us. Welcome to Wardocs. Military Medicine Podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, Wardox has you covered. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. Edward Lucci to WarDocs. Dr. Lucci is a board certified emergency medicine physician who works at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. He's a graduate of the United States Military Academy and completed medical school at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. He completed a general surgery internship at William Beaumont Army Medical Center and then graduated from a combined emergency residency program at Madigan Army Medical Center and the University of Washington. His interests include disaster response preparation and the medical management of chemical and biological casualties. Colonel Retired Lucci has deployed multiple times and has served in Iraq and Afghanistan. He also was amongst the first medical responders to the Pentagon on 9-11. You can read his full bio at wardocspodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdal, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're speaking with retired Army colonel and emergency medicine physician, Dr. Edward Lucci. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: You graduated exactly 20 years prior to me at West Point and then attended the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, the military's medical school. Tell us first how you came about joining the military and how did you become interested in Army medicine? My dad
0: was a graduate of West Point class of 58, so that was my introduction that service academies even existed. I decided as a junior to look at it and see if I was interested. And then when I got accepted, my parents felt, well, one of us, I had a twin brother, should get a, quote, free education. <laughs> so I went to West Point And uh, I didn't know what to expect. My dad, I think, was smart to not really talk too much about it because he probably didn't want to discourage me. But I felt like once I got there, I took a lot of courage to, to quit. And so I stayed and it got better every year. And I did well academically. And then I decided, well, why don't I look at medicine? Because in the back of my mind, I thought I was interested.
1: So you wound up attending the Uniformed Services University for Medical School, and then were accepted in the general surgery residency program at William Beaumont Army Medical Center in El Paso. How'd you wind up in emergency medicine? So I finished a general
0: surgery internship in Texas. And at the end of my internship, I felt like, well, I'm not ready to commit to a residency in general surgery. And I had gone straight from high school to West Point to medical school through internship. And I think I really needed to take a little break and maybe mature a little bit before I committed to a residency. So that's why I did the GMO. And uh, I ended up in Greece. And uh, I played rugby. I scuba dive. But that was also my first introduction that to terrorism because there was an active terrorist cell in Greece called November 17th. And it actually had blown up a army bus that was transporting army soldiers to the army base in Greece about a month before I arrived and several were critically injured. We had some terrorist incidents while I was there. No one was seriously injured, but that really started me thinking about that. I then decided to switch to emergency medicine and someone had told me in surgery if you can do any specialty other than general surgery and be happy, do it because you won't be happy in general surgery. And, and I switched to emergency medicine. What was interesting about the assignment there was we had a small emergency department. It was open 24-7. We had some critically ill people that would show up there. And I took care of a patient with a ruptured york Shiley mitral valve in this tiny little emergency room. And we had a Seven-bed inpatient unit, and uh, I had another episode where the commander of my army unit passed out while he was getting a blood draw for to get his cholesterol checked, and I had just enough training to to not take anything for granted. And even though our the supervising general, his boss, was coming into town that afternoon, I insisted he come to the hospital from. Where we were, we were in Alepsis, Greece, which was on the other side of Greece from the, the Air Force hospital where I worked. And so it turned out, while you might have thought, well, he had just a vasovagal reaction from a blood draw, he actually had a GI bleed and almost died. I ended up flying with him to Germany. To me, that always stuck with me as saying, you could have not taken that seriously and uh, it probably ended your career.
2: In 1993, you provided some overseas medical support for the FBI hostage rescue team in Africa. Tell us a little bit about your experiences with those assignments.
0: After my residency in, uh, at Madigan, I came to Washington and I was working with a group of military providers and specialists who provided support to federal law enforcement operations. And so I was asked to accompany the FBI hostage rescue team out of Quantico overseas to Africa to bring back a Palestinian terrorist who had killed uh, several Americans. And we went to Africa. This person had just been released after, I think, eight years in a Gibraltar prison. And uh, they wanted a medical support in case the terrorist had medical problems. He didn't, but I was there with them. We picked him up very secret operation. We flew back to Baltimore, and there was a huge contingent of security waiting to whisk him off to jail. And he was subsequently prosecuted and jailed in the United States. And the day we flew back in this top secret mission, there was an article in the New York Times describing everything about it, which uh, surprised me a little bit. Didn't you also do some work with another federal agency? I did a another thing with the uh, marshal service to a uh, nation where we evacuated 30 citizens who needed to be evacuated for protection. And my job on that mission was to screen them for medical problems because no one really knew anything about them. And so uh, there were 30 people. The oldest was about 70. And I worked down from the oldest to the youngest. And when I got to the youngest, it was a about a three-month-old baby who was bundled up, wrapped up in a bunch of blankets. And uh, when I peeled away the blankets, I could see that she was tiny and a beautiful baby face, but very emaciated, looked like she had failure to thrive. She had significant cardiac murmurs. So when we landed, I asked to take her to a local emergency department in the US. And we then had to transfer her to New Orleans Children's Hospital because she was in failure, heart failure, and she ended up requiring open heart surgery and survived and thrived, actually. And unfortunately, the family who was bringing her on this evacuation refused to take her back. And the thought was that they weren't actually the real parents when her real parents had given her up to uh, leave the chance for survival basically. And I've often wondered what happened to her. i like to think that she's a success now.
2: You were the faculty instructor for the U.S. Air Force leadership course in regional disaster response and trauma systems management. And this was presented to selected senior physicians in the Czech Republic and in Santiago, Chile in 2001, just before the attacks on 9-11. How did that experience prepare you for what happened on that day?
0: I had been interested for some time in different aspects of emergency preparedness. And it it actually goes back earlier than 2001, probably in the 90s, when I was asked to do a presentation on weapons detection technology for a Florida disaster medicine conference. But it got me thinking about disasters, terrorism, and how these patients are coming to the ER as kind of we're not sure, but we need to be prepared to take care of them. One of my roles in Washington was running a course called Bushmaster in San Antonio, which was for use as medical students. And we did disaster training and mass, caus- mass casualty management as part of that. And the Air Force out of Wilford Hall was building a concept that was the brainchild of Lieutenant General Carlton. The CCAT team, the critical care transport teams. And they would come and train with us in our Bushmaster exercises. And I got to know the trauma surgeons out of Wilford Hall who were building the CCAT teams. And they were the ones, again, at General Carlton's direction, who started the regional disaster response and trauma systems management course. They invited me to participate as part of a sort of make the course more joint faculty. And so my role, they asked me to write the triage lecture for this course we were teaching. And it was designed for foreign physicians primarily. And the capstone of the week-long course would be a disaster exercise with a plane crash. And I was running the triage at the disaster site and working with the foreign physicians and how to manage that. And so really required me to think about it. I had to write the lecture, I was teaching it. And what was always interesting in a coincidental way with me was that, like I we taught this course in July two thousand and one. and it's September two thousand and one. I found myself in the courtyard, you know, the large courtyard of the Pentagon, reporting to a tall Air Force gentleman. Uh, wearing the uh, disaster site triage vest and carrying a radio. And i he was the the guy running it in charge because everybody was reporting to him. And I just checked in and said, sir, I, can, uh, I know how to handle triage. I'm an emergency physician, so I can help you. Took off his vest and handed me the radio and said, OK, you're in charge. I need to go to the operations center. And it was General Carlton. And I saw him about 15 years later, or so or maybe 10 years later, he came to Walter Reed to Grand Rounds in surgery service. And I went up to him and told him that story. And he, he seemed to get a little
1: uh, misty eyed. Let's go into that day. So you are in what position on 9-11? What, what is your job on 9-11? 9-11,
0: I had just become the chief of the Department of Emergency Medicine, Emergency and Operational Medicine at Walter Reed. I'd taken over in July of 2001. In August of 2001 at Walter Reed, we had a major power outage that was sort of like a small mass casualty event. We had to evacuate all of our patients out of Walter Reed to Bethesda, except our ICU patients. The other thing that was going on at that time is there was talk about opening Walter Reed to to local trauma in D.C., you know, civilian trauma and general peak shut that down which was very i think fortunate for us because by november 2001 walter reed was filled with critical
1: complex military trauma patients so take us through that morning you're you're at work it's a beautiful day in dc and you get a call
0: i had actually heard on the radio that a plane had gone into the world trade center tower and to me that sounded like a terrorist event so I was leaving with a little van of about five or six people to go downtown to DC because we were doing Mascal planning for DC with the DC Hospital Association in preparation for a World Bank meeting later that s- September. And so we got a f- about a couple of blocks away from Walter Reed, and the phone call came to bring, they said, turn around and come back and uh, bring me, Ed Lucci, back to the ER. So I walked into the ER, and I said, what's going on? And my head nurse said, there's smoke coming out of the Pentagon. So I thought, well, let's get the ER ready in case something's going to happen here. We're not that close to the Pentagon at the old Walter Reed. We were about, I think, maybe 12 miles away, and there's multiple trauma centers between Walter Reed and the Pentagon. But I went into my office, and the phone rang, and it was General Timbo, the Narmc commander who said take a couple of ambulances and some people and go down to the pentagon and respond and so what i did we have a we had a small er operation at that time we had a couple of nurses one doctor on duty and so i took two of our three ambulances i put a nurse in the back of each ambulance we had medics driving and myself and my senior enlisted leader took off to the pentagon Uh, Walter Reed asked me to wait while they rounded up more doctors and other people. But I said, that's going to take too long. We're going to go. They had other transport to come down later. And they actually did come down later on with providers. But this 2001 was very different than today. You didn't have text messaging. The internet wasn't really fully developed. The whole social media hadn't developed. And so we didn't have GPS my medics asked me how to get to the Pentagon, and I just said, go down 14th Street, which runs right into the side of the Walter Reed complex. We went lights and sirens, and we got down to the Commerce Department in uh, downtown Washington, and then the roads were just clogged. so We had to get out and direct traffic and literally fight our way through. We got, half, we got halfway across the 14th Street Bridge, and there was a barricade set up. And uh, we were in, identified as at Walter Reed Ambulances and in uniform. And the guards asked us where we're going. And I said, well, we're we're here to respond for patients. Do you know where there's patients? They said tr- they think at the river side of the Pentagon, I'm going to call it the, I suppose it might be the north side. It, it's the side of the Pentagon that faces Washington, D.C. And so um, we went there and we immediately drove our two ambulances into a sea of there was probably 500 people there. But our ambulances were quickly surrounded with people. And the next thing you know, my my medic said, OK, we're full with patients. Time to go. And I said, uh, that's not how it works. Get these people out of the ambulances. We're going to identify the immediate patients here, the sickest ones, the ones that need to leave first. And I had remembered there was a German air show accident years, or in the 80s in Germany. And i had heard a presentation in Germany about it and how ambulances typically will show up and then it's sort of like whoever gets to the ambulance gets evacuated. And so my thought going into this is you want to identify the immediate patients, not the walking wounded, walking well. And so how do we identify those patients in a sea of 500 people? Well, what I asked them to do was anybody who can walk move across the highway. To There was a patch of grass on the other side of the highway. And Once we cleared the majority of people, you could see there was probably 11 litters with patients scattered in this field. And they each had some medical attendance with them. And we lined those litters up. And then we systematically went through them. And we put three in Walter Reed ambulances and sent them back to Walter Reed. I figured we could handle three critical patients We weren't a trauma center, but we had a lot of trauma-trained people. And so I sent four patients, one non-critical, burned hands, and then three seriously injured back to Walter Reed. And my medics knew how to get to Walter Reed, but they didn't know necessarily how to go to other places. So that's what happened. We then started stopping PODs coming up the highway. And we essentially said, we need to use your vehicle to take this patient to Ar- Arlington Hospital it's now been renamed Virginia Medical Center but it was the nearest trauma center so i said okay let's take him to Arlington and we'll get you know secondary triage at Arlington but my thought was patients on litters are the most critically ill right now so we we got we stopped povs and then some of the group there were there were a lot of medical providers in that crowd you know nurses dentists physicians of all shapes and sizes, and so some folks went and got their POVs out of the parking lot that was near there, and we, we used those to transport the rest of the patients. And I, we had set one patient aside because she was having respiratory problems, and we thought we were going to need to intubate her. We were originally sent her, her to Walter Reed, but we thought she might not make it, and so we had her aside, and I took her with another provider, I think it was a nurse or a dentist, we set out in the back of a Subaru. Uh, we couldn't do much in the back of the Subaru, so we had to pull over. She was having a lot of respiratory distress. We were at the side of the road trying to intubate her. There's cars, you know, a lot of traffic everywhere, and uh, people beeping at us because we're disrupting traffic. And an empty ambulance is coming by, and they said, do you need help? And I was like, uh, yes, because we couldn't move through the traffic in a Subaru. But once we got in an ambulance and lights and sirens, we were at Arlington Hospital and in a minute or two minutes. To this day, that's one of the happiest sights I can recall was pulling up with this patient who was struggling, and the folks at Arlington Hospital you know, lined up outside to receive us, and they took her right away, right into the ER, and she was intubated on a ventilator. I didn't initially know what happened to her, but a year later, I was sitting at my desk, the phone rang, and it was this patient who called to say, uh, thank you for taking care of me. And actually, I had dinner with her not too long ago in DC. She's doing great. So uh, after I got to Arlington Hospital, I then went back to the Pentagon. I got a, hitched a ride back from an ambulance, and I made my way first outside the Pentagon. Every uh, response vehicle in that in the National Capital Region had by now made their way to the Pentagon. So there was a lot going on. This was the side that was burning, and I joined a large group of people that had sort of built some kind of a response area. And right after arriving, they said, OK, everyone, evacuate under this overpass, because there's incoming planes. And they thought more planes were coming to the Pentagon. It turned out to be, I think, fighter jets from south of DC. But after that I, is when I made my way into the courtyard, and I linked up and uh, sort of got the baton pass from General Carlton. And we set up a triage area inside the Pentagon. But... At that point, no patients were coming out. It was just, there was a lot of flame and a lot of fire department people going in and out, but they would just tell us, no, we're not finding any, uh, anybody to bring out. The other thing I had there was my ChemBio team from Walter Reed had come down and they called them the SMART team, Special Medical Augmentation Response Teams. And so my team was the ChemBio team. And, those guys came from Walter Reed to help out, and we did have some equipment with us for detection. We can detect background, we can detect radiation. We also also had some chemical detection devices with us, and uh, we did get a call from the DOD to ask us if we were detecting anything and if we thought there was a chem-bio threat. Which personally I didn't because of the flame, any agent would be probably would burn up from that, but. We did have radiac meters and we were detecting uh, radiation, background radiation. That's it. Uh, we stayed there till 2 a.m. to support the the response teams at that point and then left.
2: Since that time, you were the chief of the emergency department for what looks to be at least 10 to 15 years and have all this vast knowledge of how to respond to a terrorist event. If you were to go back in time, understanding what you now know, and you were driving in that ambulance back to the Pentagon to respond to this national disaster. What have you learned since that time that would help you in responding to that event?
0: I feel like 9-11 confirmed for me things that I felt I knew. And I knew, for example, going to the scene of a disaster, it's going to be chaos. Communication is critically important and it would be very difficult, which it was. I knew that the majority of patients would go to the nearest hospital that was available, and that if you're not careful, the walking wounded, walking well, can easily clog the response. And I felt like I was confident that what my thinking was confirmed by this. I think a lot of improvements have been made since that time, just as far as technology, the ability to talk, to communicate with EMS and hospitals, et cetera. But one of the things that happened afterwards, in fact, literally the next day always sticks in my mind, and and that was that the chemical and biological casualty management had become one of my interests, because I thought it was important for emergency medicine. And that's an eight-day course that has been run by the military for a long time. And most providers can't take eight days to go four days at USAMRID for the biological weapons The U.S. Military Research Institute for uh, Infectious Disease at Fort Detrick, and then the Chemical Defense School at Aberdeen. And so we we had started in 1995 doing a two and a half day version of that, and um, we did two, three, sometimes four times a year to just introduce providers to these concepts. And I think chemical and biological casualty management is closely tied to terrorism in my mind. And The day after 9 11, we were teaching a course about two weeks later at Walter Reed. We'd set it up several months prior, and folks came into my office and told me I had to cancel my course because there was, quote, too much going on. And I said, you know, we're not canceling this course. If anything, 9 11 confirms why we need to do this course. Okay. And so I just remind people that about a couple of weeks after 9-11 we had anthrax in the mail we had five people die from inhalational anthrax and 300
1: million americans terrorized by it so let's talk about 9-12 you said you left the pentagon area around 2 a.m you probably didn't get a whole lot of sleep show up to walter reed on 9-12 what was walter reed like and what was going on on that day there was a lot of, I think, confusion.
0: People didn't really know what was going on yet. I mean, they didn't know if you know, another shoe was going to drop. And when I was asked to meet with the First Lady in the VIP ward, was some of the other people that were with me who responded to the Pentagon, and then also people at Walter Reed who took care of the casualties. We evacuated to Walter Reed from the Pentagon. We were briefed by the Secret Service to basically not say anything, do anything, or make any moves towards the First Lady. I think, at least in my mind, I sort of figured, don't say anything, just stand there. And uh, General Timbo immediately turned to me and said, Ed, you were at the Pentagon. Tell the First Lady what you saw at the Pentagon. And it really caught me by surprise because I hadn't Thought I would be asked to say anything to the first lady, and I'm to this day I'm not sure what I said to her. I was still in a little bit of fog from this whole event. It completely, you know, came out of nowhere, and uh, it was a very stressful, confusing day and uh, a long day. We were then asked to go and take a picture with the first lady out in front. We had set up our decon tent outside the ER, and uh, Ben Starns was with me, vascular surgeon, and, and I had no idea what to say. It was very obvious that the First Lady, Laura Bush, was distressed and she'd come to give us some words of encouragement, which were very useful. And uh, I recall Ben Starr saying, uh, we're with you. And uh, that that always stuck with me because I thought it it was probably good for her to hear that and know that. And we were with her. We were behind the president and first lady. And I took that with me to Iraq and Afghanistan when I went, remembering that. I'll never forget it.
2: You deployed twice to CENTCOM in 2005, first as senior medical advisor in emergency medicine to the Afghan National Army. Tell us about that experiences and the clinical cases you encountered.
0: I was asked to go as the emergency medicine consultant to the Afghan National Army, and I wasn't really taking care of patients. It was more to uh, help them develop emergency medicine. They really needed a lot of help. On our standards, it was really a backward and uh, resource-challenged environment there, their medical system. I did find the Afghan people very warm. And uh, I recall my birthday is the same day as I think the Afghan, like 4th of July, and they had a party for me, gave me gifts, which surprised me because I didn't expected and have any idea that was coming. I was really surprised. But um, a couple of things that happened there, I got to be close friends with the chief of their emergency department. And I remember I brought him a uh, textbook, the standard textbook in emergency medicine, Tintin Alley, and I gave it to him. And I saw the next day that book that I gave gave him was sitting now on their surgeon general's desk. (laughs) because we had a briefing with their Surgeon General. And I just thought, well, that must be how it works. You have to pass it up the chain. Uh, We brought them a lot of equipment, ultrasound, EKG machines. We never saw it on the wards in their hospital. They kept it all locked up because they said it would be stolen if they brought it out on the floor. I recall walking down the hallway one day with the chief of the emergency department. And he said to me, do you see that physician over there? And I said, yeah. And he said, he's Talib." And I said, you mean Taliban? And he said, uh, yeah. He said, there's a lot of Taliban here. And I said, uh, well, how can they work here? And he said, well, uh, when the Taliban were in charge of Afghanistan, you were either with the Taliban or you were on the outs, you know what I mean? And so uh, a lot of people
1: went were on board with that. And so you later deployed, or at the same year, you deployed with the uh, 86 cash in Iraq and Baghdad as a emergency medicine physician. Can you tell us any memorable clinical cases or other stories from that deployment?
0: Yeah, that was a, an interesting deployment. I was there when the siege of Fallujah was going on. The way it worked, we were the hospital. We took over that hospital that was, I think, Saddam Hussein's personal hospital. We were inside the green zone, and we were seeing major, major trauma there was a person was so close to an explosion that they lost an extremity you know, that's like at ground zero. And they usually had a traumatic brain injury and other injuries. So our busiest day while I was there, we had 54 major traumas. Now we had three ER doctors. There was an e- a day doctor, a night doctor, and one would be off. The night doctor would be off. And so virtually every day, all three doctors were, ER doctors were responding. So you virtually never got a day off, which was interesting. But our trauma service was so busy there that I remember a gunshot wound to the thigh. That, was, that went to our fast track, OK? I had, as a result of the siege of Fallujah, they weren't letting Iraqis into Fallujah. And so they flew to me one night in the green zone from Fallujah, which was 300 miles away. A two-year-old who was stung by an Iraqi scorpion. And I asked them, why did you bring him here? And they said, well, we weren't letting him go to the hospital. So we brought him to you. And so obviously in, in Fallujah, their experience was scorpion bites, but that's the that was the first one for me. And it was a two-year-old. And so it was kind of a very toxic experience for him. And the other thing that had happened is the neighbor of these people had was like a paramedic and had given this child some kind of injection. We don't really know what it was. But when they showed up, the kid was gray and limp as a dish rag. And so we had to put an intraosseous IV in him. We, we fluid resuscitated him. And in about four hours, he was fine. To me, that was an interesting case. I also had uh, an experience with nine ankle fractures. And so if you knew how the hospital worked, you would typically call the specialist. So like the orthopedic surgeon, you'd say, yeah, I have an ankle fracture. I have a gunshot wound with a fracture, whatever it was. And one night there was a, an air assault from a helicopter. And basically, I think it was nine Iraqis were coming down the air assault line and it, it was getting higher and higher. As they jumped, the, the helicopter got lighter and rose higher and higher off the ground. And you know, I asked them, I don't know if you're experienced with this or not, but the first one was probably 15 feet off the ground. But by the last one, there was about 25 feet off the ground. And so everyone who went down You have to go off the rope, right? Because people above you are coming down. And and as they jump, the helicopter gets lighter and goes higher. And so I had to call my orthopedic surgeon from Walter Reed, who I knew, and tell him there's nine ankle fractures down here. He's not happy.
2: So what advice would you give to a 20-year-old who was interested in joining the military and particularly in medicine? The opportunities in the military,
0: particularly military medicine, are completely limitless. The limit is your imagination. And I took full advantage of the opportunities as they came up. And I would I encourage people to do that if your you know if your job and your supervisors support it. But I did the military tropical medicine course, which helped me, for example, in because of my position in Walter Reed, I used to travel with members of Congress overseas, third world countries where tropical medicine is important. One of my CODEL experiences was with a high ranking member of Congress who was having a medical emergency in the Middle East. And I had to make the call do we go to a local ER or do we fly to Launchstool, to the ICU and Launchstool, which we did. And fortunately, that worked out. The other thing I like to tell people that always worked with me and for me was there's no limit to what you can accomplish. In the military, provided you don't mind who takes the credit, I used to say that in jest, but there's probably a fair amount of truth to that also. I think military medicine offers a lot. I have a twin brother who went the completely civilian route, and I compare my career to his, and his was more standard, and mine was you know, a lot of interesting things that I've been able to do that I couldn't have done in civilian world, no question about it.
2: So you have a lot of training in preparedness for terrorist events and bioterrorism. What advice would you give to military physicians who are early in their career as they prepare to be ready for those types of events?
0: Well, I'll quote Louis Pasteur and say that fortune favors the prepared mind. If you haven't thought about these things, you're going to be less prepared when something does happen. And um, I've always felt like chemical and biological casualty management in particular, it's not part of the standard like lexicon of patient care that we deal with on a daily basis in the emergency room. And there is some translation over to, say, emergency, emerging infections. And you know, it helped me with Ebola management when we were dealing with that. Walter Reed was the point for military evacuation out of West Africa when they were having e- Ebola in 2015. I borrowed this from Admiral Zimbel. The cornerstone of preparedness is education and training so you need to educate yourself to the point where you're comfortable with what i would describe as the fear of the unknown people i think shy away from these kinds of patients because when they i i tell you when it came to ebola and we had five patients referred to us at walter reed that we had to quote rule out ebola And when you said the word ebola patient coming in the, wall, the waiting room would evacuate and all the, I mean, the nurses would get tense. When it comes to dealing, I think, thinking about terrorism and what an appropriate response is, I think you want to focus on principles. How, what do you need to do to protect your staff and your patients is a good place to start. Keep things as simple as possible. I actually think the military would benefit by making CBERNI training like ATLS and ACLS and PALS. And simplify it, and sort of make it kind of a cookbook thing to some extent, so that people can draw on the principles of it and not be afraid of it when it happens. It's a mistake to to think that we don't have to worry about this. It's it's foolish to let this threat fall off our radar screen. If you look at the former Soviet Union. Their chemical and biological weapons programs were magnitudes larger than their nuclear program. And Russia inherited all of that. To me, it makes good sense. Any way you can simplify this kind of training, it's more likely to stick with
2: people. So have you ever had any situations at Walter Reed where there was truly a mass casualty event? Uh, Well, can I give you one example
0: that it wasn't? It, was, it uh, wasn't real, but it started out as we didn't know. I, I would say I have a very strong working understanding of chemical and biological casualty management. So if you say I have someone exposed to ricin, inhaled, inhaled ricin, I know what that means and what we do with that. And so this was a few years ago. I was the chief of the ER at the new Walter Reed, and we got a call from the Navy Yard that they had two mail workers. And see, after nine, after uh, anthrax in the mail, all the mail that goes to the White House in Capitol Hill gets sorted at the Navy Yard before it goes to them. They sort it in rooms with uh, chemical and biological detection devices. And so there were two workers in the room when the ricin monitor went off. OK, so they didn't know what to do. They uh, called me and said, "We're gonna. Can we send them to Walter Reed?" And I said, "Absolutely. We'll be waiting for you." I said, "Did you decontaminate them?" And they said, uh, "They did." But what I saw this as, I knew it wasn't an emergency issue, really, because there's no treatment for a ricin. For one thing, there's no antidote for it. But you wouldn't develop symptoms immediately. You could develop multi-organ failure, but it wouldn't. Happen in a few hours, and plus, if you've inhaled ricin, you're no threat to anyone. So I said, sure, send him up to Walter Reed, and I thought this is an opportunity to exercise our our plan because we're the regional decon center. We have a we have a big, robust decon platform there, and so that's exactly what we did. They brought two; one was military, and one was retired military. They brought him to Walter Reed. We decontaminated him. We put him in our we have two isolation rooms, negative pressure isolation rooms in in the ER. So I said, put them in scrubs, put them in those rooms, give them food, and then we'll I'll talk with infectious disease, and we'll figure out what to do. And so, but I got screamed at by the acting commander of Walter Reed. It wasn't the real commander; the commander was off site, and so it was the acting commander, and he screamed at me multiple times about how could I accept these patients and. I was putting the whole hospital at risk. And in the meantime, the, they came in an ambulance from the Navy Yard, a, a Navy ambulance. And our fire department on base responded and told me, We swabbed one of the tires of the ambulance and we think we detected ricin. You know, they have these rapid detection kits. And I just said, Okay, this is getting a little crazy. <laughs> And they they were bringing the hazmat team over from NIH. It's run by the FBI to re-swab and see if he said if it's if we detect ricin, we may have to shut down the whole hospital. And I told our fire chief that's fine if you bring them over to retest it to just make sure it's negative because that's getting too crazy. Anyway, it worked out. It was a good, frankly, a good training exercise for us. These two souls were probably the victim of a a detection device that just sort of malfunctioned. It was actually new and they just installed them, but no one knew how to handle it. They were decontaminated and locked in an ambulance, the back of an ambulance for four hours as they tried to figure out what to do with these people. That's kind of the thing that scares me is if you're not comfortable with the information, there's a very high likelihood that people will overreact. And there's the whole to me the fear of the unknown. If you want to see fear of the unknown, watch the 60 Minutes where they interviewed the nurses in Dallas who took care of the first Ebola patient in the United States and how scared they were. I'll I'll quote the famous uh, philosopher George Santayana who said, "Those who fail to remember the past are condemned to repeat it." This will happen again. I think. People said the failure of 9-11 was a failure of the imagination of, I think, like the intelligence community to predict this and prepare for it. But something will happen. It's inevitable.
1: So if your family was listening to this podcast 100 years from now, what would you want them to hear? What would you say to them about your career in military medicine?
0: I think I would be remiss if I didn't take an opportunity to thank the people that helped me along the way. I think I was very fortunate in, in my career to uh, surround myself with very smart people, hard workers, physicians, nurses, and I got to have close contact with very smart people. For example, it was Jay Sanford, who you may recognize the name, former dean and president of USIS, who told me, if you ever see a, one patient with inhalational anthrax, It'll be terrorism if it's in a usual setting. And so personally, when there was a, if you can remember in 2001, when the first case of inhalational anthrax popped up in Florida, I personally went to the commander of Walter Reed and told them that this is probably terrorism called the DC hospitalization hospital association present and told them the same thing called friends at the CDC and at USAMRIT at Fort Detrick to ask about it and make sure it was on everyone's radar screen. Because Dean Sanford was right. You don't get inhalational anthrax under normal circumstances. I tried my best to mentor people, listen well, give everyone a voice and opportunity around me, treat everybody fair and honestly. And the other people I would recognize is the folks who went with me to the Pentagon on 9-11. I felt like they really responded bonded with calm and courage and we were a small band of providers it's unusual for a hospital to send hospital staff out of the hospital to a disaster site that's pretty unusual but no one with me questioned their orders and in fact the driver the medic driver of one of my ambulances her sister was a uh, worked at the World Trade Center restaurant on the the, the uh, windows to the world. And she was distracted by that because she knew what was happening in New York, but she never wavered. And she did a uh, phenomenal job. In fact, she drove an ambulance back to Walter Reed with two critically injured patients. I'm proud of the
1: fact that how we responded on 9-11. We've been speaking with retired Army Colonel, Dr. Edward Lucci. Ed, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us at WarDocs, and thanks for your service.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of WarDocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.